Welcome to the world's premier Black Crows podcast. State of America. Hosted by two of the band's most dedicated fans, David Hudson and Ian Rice. And now, let's get the show on the road. All right, everybody, welcome back to the State of America podcast. Hope everybody's having a good week, staying safe, washing those hands, wearing those masks, and trying to help us get through this uh, quarantine so we can get back to live music. Ian, it's been a little bit since we've talked, and uh, you just told me you just got back from uh, the grocery store. So was that like trying to uh, run through a minefield? Yeah, it's like... uh... It's it's like being out in the wild, man. You know, it's uh, I I didn't realize it till I I I went out. Like I, I've really just not been anywhere for quite some time. I've been a, a good uh, a good citizen, you know. Well, we need more people to do that. I am man. I am ready for this to be over with. And I keep reading reports like we may not have live concerts till next year, and uh, that's when we've gone too far, Ian. The virus has gone too far. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's such a double-edged sword because you, you like you want it to be over with and you want to get back to business as usual, but at the same token, you rush into it and it could, uh, you know, it could be a second wave or something like that, you know? Yeah, it could be. You don't want, you do not want that. Hey, everybody! Before we kind of get deeper in the episode, I want to say uh, please follow us on Twitter at State of America, and we have a Facebook page at State of America Podcast and an Instagram page by the same name. Uh, follow us on all three of those platforms and we can keep you up to date on the news and happenings of the podcast and everything in the Black Crows world. Well, Ian, uh, you know, artists are having like a, to come up with new ways to basically communicate with us these days. And last night, Chris Robinson did something very out of character for him. Basically had a uh, question and answer session on Instagram and uh, he was his normal uh, witty self on it. Some of the answers... You know, it's normal Chris type answers, and some of them uh, we got some good info on on some things. But uh, thank you to all the uh, people that listened that kept bombarding with them. Will you please come on the State of America podcast? That one didn't get answered. Uh, I wish it would have, but uh, we're gonna keep working. At some point, that's gonna gonna happen. Yeah, I even threw my hat in the ring on that one, but nothing. Even if I just got uh, the same answer he gave to like four of the questions, which was uh, New York Dolls personality crisis, you know, but uh, <laughs> it was cool. It, it was, uh, I think, as it as it went on, he got progressively more and more stoned. <laughs> but, yeah. One of the things that came out, he did say uh, that he enjoyed recording Three Snakes the most. He said that he ran into Billy Gibbons recently at a at a restaurant. I can't re- really remember anything else that was that profound as far as um, news. Can you? Oh, he said the tour is still on. He did say that at the end. Yeah, I think he did seem to kind of have some excitement about that. And I think, you know, a lot of artists are as clueless as anybody else as to whether or not things are going to be canceled because you're doing it on such a uh, minute-by-minute kind of basis, you know? Yeah, it's going to be weird. I, I'm kind of going over the possibilities in my head if, if they actually have the one I go to. And I do have the meet and greet. Maybe I could get somebody to sew me a uh, Black Crow's face mask to wear for the uh, the picture. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cop this idea from uh, – I saw it posted on somebody's post on one of the Black Crow's uh, Facebook pages. But their idea for the face mask was the, the, you know, the cover of Amorica basically, you know, the, <laughs> the triangle right. American flag thing. That would be kind of cool. You know? I, I wouldn't mind the one with the, uh, the crow kind of smirking to the side with joints sticking outside of his mouth. Something, something yeah, gets some attention. Something like that. <laughs> and uh, let's see, another thing that happened was the other night uh, on the Black Crows YouTube channel, 
they premiered three songs off of a Brothers of a Feather show from the chapel in San Francisco. Let's see, my memory is fading on me. It was Hotel Illness, uh, Garden Gate, and what was the other song? Wiser Time. Wiser Time. And uh, I got corrected on the, the internet. Obviously, I'm not a musician, and I kept going, during that solo for Wiser Time, I know he's playing a 12-string, but it sounds like it's two guitars. And then people explained that, it was it a repeater that he had going or something like that, where it was it was basically playing the rhythm tracks for him, and he was playing the lead. Is that right? Oh, I, uh, I wasn't aware of that. It would make sense. I was uh, kind of wondering that myself, because it was very... Uh seamless kind of like you know you could hear both distinct parts i thought rich had just come up with some really inventive uh, finger work there but uh, maybe it was uh, technology giving him a hand you know but it did sound really good i thought um i thought it was an interesting choice throwing garden gate in there and i <laughs> I, I teased everybody on twitter i said hey we've already recorded a before the frost episode that'll be out in a few weeks when they played garden gate but uh hotel illness man i i've, I've said it a million times on here it's one of my favorite songs it just makes me feel good and uh, Chris just killed it on the harmonica. Oh, yeah, man. As far as that uh, Garden Gate goes, our guest that we had for the Before the Frost episode, uh, Liam Whiting, he sent me a message right away. He said, oh, David must have been in Seventh Heaven. They played Garden Gate, you know. <laughs> and I said, yeah. <laughs> so he was actually eagerly awaiting your uh, reaction to that. So, uh, Well, I'll try not to be annoying about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what would you think? I, I mean, I thought it was, I thought it was a good – it was good. I wish they'd have done the whole thing. It makes me wonder, or that is that going to be like a Blu-ray release, or is that going to be like a live vinyl that's going to be released, or just a live download? I don't know. It's hard to say. Like when it, when they first announced it, I I got the impression that it was the full thing. Like it didn't really distinguish that it was just a you know a couple of tracks. And then I read an article on Jambase that kind of put it out there that it was three tracks. A lot of people were complaining that it wasn't the full show, and you know I get it, but also. It's still three tracks you didn't get to see before, and uh, you know maybe it is just some kind of trailer almost for uh, you know a full fledged release. I'd like to see it like they did with Live at the Roxy, like a you know an audio version and a video version. That'd be kind of cool. Well, it was professionally filmed, and I, somebody pointed out on uh, Twitter that I didn't really notice until after they said it. There were no songs from Shake Your Money Maker. In the broadcast or just in the set list entirely? Just on what they what they showed. You would think like if they're trying to promote that tour, they would throw, you know, She Talks to Angels or Jealous Again or something like that in there, but they didn't. They were smart not to because honestly I've noticed, you know, even me, I like to watch anything they do really. And I've noticed, you know, repetitively in, the, in any kind of like the thing they did for NPR and then there was another thing they did for the World Cafe. They always play something off, you know, they kind of reusing the same tunes a lot, so – they're yeah. hammering that uh, shake your money maker thing home, you know. They are, they are. I just, I hope it happens, but I, I kind of want them to push it back a while. Yeah, I'm not real excited about going to a, a meet and greet around a bunch of people right now. To be completely honest with you, yeah. Well, maybe they'll organize it in a way where it's, uh, you know, social distance distancing friendly. What's well, kind of like now, like I had to go to the store the other day, and like the cashier, they have the full plastic thing down in between hard yeah. plastic maybe they stand behind that and you just stand in front and you get the picture taken that would be kind of funny actually <laughs> it would it be it'd be a moment they actually have that it just introduced that here uh in the 7-eleven you know mm-hmm. the convenience store and uh you know i one day they didn't have it one day they did but you know it's smart everywhere you go here it's i mean whether it's a gas station or the grocery store or we had to run into um home depot for something and, and they had it up so um yeah, that's pretty smart. But all right, Ian. So we've kind of teased this a little bit on Twitter, and you teased it a little bit on Facebook. 
you have some really big news to announce this week. Yeah, getting uh, a, a little side venture going. Uh, not that I don't love uh, my time here and what we do. I mean, this is obviously my favorite thing. But from doing the under review episodes that we that we do when we you know dissect a Black Crow's album, I kind of got the idea that I wanted to do it a little more universally. So I'm I'm firing up a uh, a new podcast called Classic Wax. Uh, it debuts on May fourth. It's just going to be a different record every week, a different guest every week. Now, uh, predictably, you might be able to guess who my f- first week's guest was. I some re- you know, some guy that's really annoying. Yeah. <laughs> well, according to uh, Apple Podcasts, um, yeah, I, David joins me for the first episode. The first episode is going to touch on uh, a controversial choice, perhaps Metallica's Load album, and uh, you know we go through that. I didn't want to uh, go into this. Uh, entirely by myself i needed david by my side to get my feet wet you know but uh, it should be fun and i hope people enjoy it and you know of course david will be on quite regularly i hope anyway that's my intention well i have uh, i have seen the first the the guest list for the first few episodes and the albums that he's that ian's gonna do and it's it's very it's very diverse and i think uh i think all of you gonna like it i'm really excited about it he's put a lot of time into this and I think it's going to be really good. Ian has really good taste in music, and we've made a lot of connections through this podcast and through my other podcasts, and I've been able to share some of those with him. And I think his guest list is going to be really good, and the albums he's going to go through are very its very eclectic. I'm really looking forward, because the only one I've heard is the one I did with him. And to be honest, we recorded that around Christmas time. Yeah, this has been an idea for a while, and uh, you know certain things. Uh, most recently, obviously, the situation that's going on now has just put it off a bit. But actually, now that we've been home so much, you know, I've actually got about eight of these ready to go. So, you know, uh, I'm all set for a little while. You know. <laughs> well, why don't you tell everybody where they can find info about it? Email me, of course, at uh, classicwaxpodcast at gmail dot com. Um, on Facebook, Classic Wax Podcast. Uh, Twitter is at Classic Wax Pod, and Instagram is uh, Classic Wax Podcast. So I've sent out a few things. You have to excuse me. I'm a little uh, Twitter ignorant, so I'm just figuring my way out around that. But uh, so far, some people have uh, come on board and really shown support for something they've not even heard yet, so I really do appreciate that, and that's great. Yeah, so that's going to be a lot of fun to listen to. So go follow him on those platforms, and you'll get an update about when the first episode is going to come out. So our guest this week is Jeff Dunn, a guy that was really played a really big role in how we all heard the Black Crows live for, I believe it was like nine or 10 years. Jeff is the son of Donald Duck Dunn, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame bass player. Um, he's played on a lot of music you've heard. He was, uh, he was real integral at... Uh, Stax Records in Memphis, and uh, that's where Jeff grew up. We had a just a blast talking to him, and, and he's one of the guys, the kind of guys we wanted to interview because he had a front row seat for everything. And uh, he wasn't part of the band, but he was part of you know Black Crows Incorporated, I guess you could say. You know, t- touring with all of them. Man, I uh, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was a it was a fantastic time. He was one of the most cordial people we've spoken to, and and definitely had a lot of interesting things to say. You know, beyond. His time with the Black Crows, just, you know, early days in the business and, and things like that. So when I was a kid, man, and I watched the Blues Brothers, the film, because I was really into the Blues Brothers, like I, uh, from seeing them on TV. And I watched the film. I remember when they come out on stage, they do Can't Turn You Loose. It's like the Blues Brothers theme song. You know, it's an instrumental. Right. And, you know, the, the, the groundwork of that is basically 
Duck Dunn and and who and whoever the uh, keyboard player was at the time. But I was like fascinated by that, seeing his dad do that and being so like obsessed with that bass line on it. And that's one of my earliest musical memories. It's funny. Ian, you have all the info that we're going to put up about his uh, book. Yeah, just check the uh, the the Facebook post when it when the episode uh, debuts, and all the info will be on there. Please do go by uh, his website and check out the stuff. There's some really cool stuff on there, like the uh, a replica of the duck sticker that Duck Dunn used to have on his base, and you know things like that. Like he's really the keeper of his father's estate now, and he's trying to keep that alive and. And uh, we also have a really good uh, giveaway that we mentioned towards the end of the episode about the uh, Soul Fingers book. It uh, looks like a very cool book, so we have one to give away. And uh, the details on that are, are just as we're wrapping up this episode. All right, everybody. Hang in there. Be safe. Wash those hands. Put that face mask on. And here is Jeff Dunn. Ian, you know, uh, in the last couple of weeks, we've had Charity on, we've had Mona, we had uh, Steve Gorman on um, a couple of months ago, and we told you that uh, we really wanted to reach out and get as many people that were associated with the Crows as we could, and uh, I'm really excited about today's guest. Um, yes. I found uh, Jeff Dunn, and, and for those of you who aren't familiar, Jeff was the guy that was responsible for the Black Crow sounding so good live a lot of years, <laughs> and so uh, it is uh, it is a great pleasure to welcome the State of Morica podcast, Jeff Dunn. Hey guys, how you doing? Hello everybody. Hi Jeff, how are you? Doing great. Great, great. So, Jeff, I'm really interested in, in this first question that I have for you because uh, we'll get into your kind of your musical pedigree here in a second. But what was kind of your first earliest memory of music? And, and also, like, what was your first kind of favorite band that you got into growing? Because if I'm correct, you grew up in Memphis, right? Yep, that's right. And uh, I'll have to say for me, even though my dad was a musician, I didn't really understand that in the very beginning. So what happened was... I was exposed to a band called the monkeys because they were on TV and had the cool car. And, you know, there was the monkeys and Batman on TV and all that stuff. So I remember the first record that uh, I ever was able to buy after saving up some allowance was a monkeys record. And, uh, so that was a memory. Uh, and then I started kind of listening more to like stuff that my dad was listening to, like uh, that song by the Rascals, People Everywhere Just Want to Be Free. But I got in trouble with that one because when I was in first grade, they told the kids they could bring, uh, the students could bring records in to listen to and share. And I, they didn't know what I was all about or my dad. So, of course, I brought that record in and they pretty much lifted the needle after about five seconds because they didn't know kids even knew about that kind of music. So the funny thing was, is then me and my younger, now deceased brother, uh, my dad was getting a lot of promotional records too. So we were playing like modern music on children's record players at home uh, because they were around and, you know, children's records were boring. So we were already getting our feet wet with uh, Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix and even uh, listening to the comedy of Cheech and Chong. I remember he had Cheech. <laughs> first album and uh 
it was, uh, you know, a lot of exposure, but, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, for those who don't know, your, your dad is, uh, is Donald Duck Dunn, uh, one of the most, uh, renowned bassists of, of, uh, music of all time. And he's in the rock and roll hall of fame. What was it like, uh, growing up in, in a household with your father in it? Were you exposed to a lot more music than say the average person or? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, at first, like I said, I didn't really know what he did for a living. And one day we were going down the road in the car uh, with the AM radio on back then. And my mother's, a song came on the radio that he played on. And my mother's like, hear that thing, you know, the the, the, the low thing going along with the music. I'm like, no, not really. I don't hear it. <laughs> and I'm like, what does he do? And she goes, he's funny, you know. And I thought he was actually in a printing or making coins or something you know <laughs> and I finally figured it out uh once i got a little older and uh it was a real experience even though he was uh, like a real dad you know uh his hours were different but when he wanted to lay down the law he would do it and uh <laughs> you know he had a great sense of humor but he didn't put up with any shit either uh, <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, he's kind of a character. And uh, also, when I was a kid, I got to meet uh, a lot of stars back then, uh, you know, not really realizing what they were about or anything. But, you know, then I would tell my friends at school and they would freak out. <laughs> <laughs> so were you, hang- were you hanging out as a, as a small child around stacks a lot? Yeah, some. Uh, I remember when I first started going in there, he'd take me there going into the control room and, and really being afraid of it because I knew I watched the tape reels. And they and Stax was made of an old movie theater. So they had this big Altec uh, voice of the theater speaker and this multi-cell horn in there that was left over from the movie theater. They ended up using it as a near-field studio monitor, which was a lot uh, and very loud. So... I didn't like that, and it looked scary to me, which is kind of funny because then look what I ended up doing later, mixing sound for one of the loudest rock bands out there. <laughs> <laughs> I would watch the tape reels, and I knew when the tape reels started moving, that's when it got loud, and I would hold my ears. And then another little, two other little memories I have, because, you know, I was a kid back then. I didn't really get the music part, but uh, I remember asking Al Jackson Jr., the drummer, if I could feel his hair, his afro, because it looked so cool. And he's <laughs> he was sitting on the couch and I was standing behind him. And I remember feeling his hair and also uh, standing one day out front under the marquee at Stax. And uh, Isaac Hayes gave me a piece of double mint gum. Wow. <laughs> he was a really nice guy. And also, uh, when I was working with the Crows in like 2000, uh, it was about 2000 towards the end of my tenure with them. Uh, we did the Super Bowl in Miami. Uh, the, the Super Bowl experience, and Al- Isaac was one of the performers on the same stage as us. Uh, we were all talking to him and Chris. We were all joking about it, uh, Chris and Rich and everyone saying, uh, I guess everyone knows you more as chef now than Isaac Hayes. <laughs> yeah, man, it's kind of bad. But, uh, yeah, really nice man, and uh, you know, a lot of fun memories of Stacks. but then it went away really fast, too. Now, did you did you yourself play uh, music at all? Did you play any instruments or anything? Yeah, I started just playing uh, by ear, basically. Uh, once, like most people, once you start uh, learning about girls and get interested in girls, and you know, finding other things you can do besides sports. So, there were instruments around the house, so I started picking them up, and my dad 
showed me the way that he knew to play, which was basically learning by playing along with records. You know, so he taught me a couple of songs. One was uh, Back in Love Again by LTD, which is an old funk number, uh, Back in Love Again. You probably heard it a million times. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, you know, he would just put it on over and over. And, he, you know, I get it half right. He goes, yeah, you got half of it, but then you got to really listen closer to get the rest. And then he would show me what it really is. And, uh, you know, so he definitely gave me a little kick. And uh, also my brother played guitar. So we started playing together, uh, too. So, you know, music was a big thing around there and, and what we did. Well, how did you get into the production side? Basically, in 1983, in the early part of 83, in January, my father was in uh, Portland with Eric Clapton doing production rehearsals for the start of his Money and Cigarettes tour that year. And my, uh, he was in Portland. The family was in Memphis. Uh, I only have one other sibling, my brother. He was in a fatal car accident one night and, uh, dad had to fly home for the funeral and still committed to going on ahead and doing the tour. So he basically said to me, your mother's going to come with me out on tour. Do you want to come out on the road for a little while? or come out. And I said, sure. I said, I, I wouldn't mind getting away from this for a little while. And if you guys are both going, I'll go along too. I mean, at the time I was 19 years old and who else wouldn't turn down a, a chance to go on tour on a big rock tour, you know, uh, especially when you're trying to deal with some, a loss like right. that and you're still in shock. So I went out there and, uh, at first I thought I might do, uh, like handle his bases but the guitar tech had him under control, and he really didn't have a, a lot of complicated setup or anything. He had a bass, main bass, and a spare bass, and one amp. One amp. So um, the sound engineer, his name was John Gadenzi, and the sound company for them at the time was a Tasco Sound from England, who had offices in America by then. He came up to me after the first gig, because I'd been out front watching him run the soundboard, and he said... Uh, hey, are you interested in running sound, you know? And I said, well, there's not much to do with the band gear up here, which I kind of knew about already, but wouldn't have minded doing that either. And I pointed up at the lighting rig hanging over our head, and I said, I don't want to climb around on that shit either. <laughs> <laughs> I am interested in speakers and things like that, and, and mixing and recording and all that, that end of it, the musical side of it because I already played music, and I said, yeah. So the next thing I knew, I, I learned backwards, because I'm on a big tour. They basically showed me how to, what plugs in where, like these match up to these, and I, I knew how to plug it in. I didn't know what was going through the wires, though, at first, but then I got familiar with it. You know, this is the power. These are the speaker cables. This is the signal cable, you know, and kind of learned from a backwards fashion that most people do, starting out small in clubs and working their way up, you know. Because before that, really more of just a bass player than of a sound tag. But after doing it for some time, I got a job. For, uh, I hung out on the, did the Clapton tour, finished that. And then uh, Tasco had a lot more tours, more heavy metal stuff. Like I did Judas Priest, 84, 86, and 88. But I was wow. on the sound crew at that point. I wasn't mixing bands then. I was um, pushing around the black boxes and hanging them in the air and, and keeping them going. So, uh, but yeah, I went on to work for Tasco as a technician and did that for most of the 80s. Then towards the end, I kind of really started saying, you know, now I'm ready to start getting behind the controls more because 
a lot of times we would get opening acts that didn't have an engineer and all the other crew guys like they wanted to just sit on the bus and take a break before the main act started so they'd say hey jeff will do it for 30 or 40 bucks and i'd be like yeah you know and of course it was like throwing a baby in the swimming pool i mean there was some red on when i first started i didn't really know doing i was just kind of faking it i knew what it's supposed to sound like but i didn't know enough about the controls yet but i knew enough to fake it through it and had guys around me that would steer me the right direction if i was messing up so i got to practice in big arenas with bands like crocus and you know <laughs> stuff like that but it got me enough practice to then go into clubs later with bigger names and, uh, and, you know, mixing in an easier environment than a big barrel of a room, like an arena is. But, yeah, it was all good. A lot of fun, too. I imagine there's some people listening to this that have, that have done done the same thing you have, except, like, they probably started out at, like, some, like, dingy rock club for years and worked their way up. And you're like, I started with Clapton and moved on to Priest. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's did you, have any, did you have a lot of interaction with Clapton on that first tour? Yeah, I mean, I did. Actually, I have a watch that he bought that uh, – he basically uh, bought this uh, Tag Hoyer watch. Back then, it was just called Hoyer, not Tag Hoyer. And it was like a nice pewter-colored watch. And uh, he he was like sitting there, and me and my dad were sitting there. And he goes, you know, I bought it, but I'm just not sure about it. He goes, Doug. And, and Dad said, well, shit, I like that a lot. He goes, I'll buy it from you. He goes, you know what? I'll, Dad said, I'll buy it from you and give it to Jeff. And Eric said, look, I'll just give it to Jeff. And he just handed it to me. And I was like, wow. <laughs> Uh, a couple, one time I got to fly because what he liked to do is do the charter plane thing where they try to base in one city for three or four shows and then they just fly in and out uh, and stay in the same hotel for multiple days. So one or two times I got to fly on that, which was a lot of fun and a really nice plane. And uh, then the one, the, the biggest one was uh, we were doing a sound check and I was standing up on stage and my dad kind of nodded me to come over. And he like held the note or it was an open note and he took the bass off and handed it to me and I strapped it on and we're standing behind Eric. He's up in the front of the stage playing duck. And my dad went down and walk, took a walk out front and Eric looked up and saw him out there. And then he turned around and looked at me. He said, wow, I didn't even hear the difference. <laughs> wow. Well, that's a ringing endorsement. <laughs> so I got the jam with him for a few minutes. So that was fun. So by the time you get to, you know, around the uh, around 1990 or so how did you get hooked up with the black crows well at, when the crows first came out rolling stone magazine did a review of the crows and when they reviewed the crows they also reviewed two other bands in the same review because they were all kind of in the same genre it was the black crows the london choir boys and the company of wolves okay so get this uh from tasco sound i was working with Cinderella on the Cinderella tour from Philadelphia, that band. Then I went to do uh, Bullet Boys from California were opening for Cinderella. So I went with Bullet Boys after they got off the Cinderella tour. Then from Bullet Boys, I started mixing the same manager, Larry Mazur, managed a band, Company of Wolves. So through Tasco and everything, I ended up getting working with the Company of Wolves. So I spent a lot of 1990, early part of it, working with the Company of Wolves. And it was funny because the drum tech, uh, John Weber, he had a Black Crows tape on the bus and he really liked them a lot. So he would like play it on the Company of Wolves bus and they would get a little concerned about it because, you know, they're like, hey, that's our competition, you know? 
turned out, uh, once that tour finally came to an end, I went home and two weeks later, I got a call from Tasco saying, uh, Black Crows aren't happy with uh, who's doing their sound now. Would you be interested? And uh, I said, yeah, I'd be interested. So they were coming to the Universal Amphitheater with Robert Plant and Jimmy Page, Page and Plant. So they basically got me tickets and just told me to kind of fly below the radar. And I had a seat behind the soundboard a few rows back. It was like, you know, just play it uh, undercover and go in and listen to the show and get a feel for it. So I went there, I met Mark Botting, the tour manager backstage, and he gave me my tickets, and I just went and watched briefly. The first gig I did with them, the next day, I believe it was, and they were doing the Arsenio Hall show. That was like the first show and day I really got to hang out with them and meet them. And really, for me, I wasn't really mixing that show. You can kind of tell them what to do. It's kind of funny trying to tell guys what to do when you hadn't really mixed them yet. But uh, <laughs> What do you tell them when they're the Black Crows? Hey, this is a straight-ahead fucking rock band, so uh, <laughs> maybe you can hear everything equally and uh, maybe put Chris a little bit on top, and that's about all you got to do, you know? Uh, organize it properly and let it fly. So that's that. Uh, but then shortly after that, I was doing club shows with them. Those were the first gigs I did with them. So, what were kind of your uh, what kind of your first impressions of the band, uh, just on like a personal level and just on a musical level? Well, at that time, there was a lot of heavy metal that was kind of on its way out or beginning to be on its way out. So, they were more bluesy and, and you know old school, I would say, than a lot of the bands I've been working with, more raw than than the other stuff. So, uh, it, it was a little bit of a challenge, you know, because you got uh, Something that, you know, at the time, your, your impression is, you know, all these CDs sound pretty slick and you, you want things to, you know, you can get you can get that sound in a club with, the you know, the right ingredients. But, uh, you know, they were rougher. And so I had to kind of almost uh, just accept the fact that I'm not going to get the same clarity that I can get with other situations. But the main thing was, is I was noticing the crowd and how into it they were and the energy in the room and, and the raw, just rock Neanderthal, pretty much just in your face, kick ass going, you know, that kind of slap in the face, a shot of whiskey sort of thing. <laughs> just hang <laughs> is kind of it, you know? Now you started with them at that time, but how, how long did you, did you go with them as, as their sound man? I lasted up until the end of the Jimmy Page thing in 2000. So I was with them for 10 years. That's a long time to work with any band uh, and do anything. I'm glad I did it. But sometimes I think, you know, what would have happened if I would have done five years of it and then maybe tried to just make it a change? You know, you never know where you could end up. But I wouldn't trade my times with them for anything leading up to the very end with what I did. And, you know, the Jimmy Page thing, I mean, like I told you earlier, listening to those records as a little kid and then all through my life, when I heard he was coming around, that was like, shit, I get to mix Led Zeppelin now. That's, that's like, amazing. And, and you got to mix songs that he never really played live with the band. That's right. And, you know, the funny thing is, is when you're doing it, I mean, if you guys did what I was doing, you, you just hear it in your head. You can Everything that's coming up, you know, like, I know exactly what to do. Shit, I've heard it a million times, and I love it more every time I hear it. So the things where they, you know, you pan things left and right or you know, the little sound effects or whatever, the echoes, all that stuff. It's just uh, incredible. So, Jeff, let me ask you this. Like, what, what are some of the challenges that you face 
because I mean the Crows were road dogs. They they toured a lot. They weren't like a lot of bands and just did you know thirty dates whenever they had an album come come out. They would tour you know several tours a year. What are some of, like the daily challenges you face by the fact that you're at a different venue each night? Because I'm I'm kind of interested in kind of the day to day goings on on things like that. Well, real quick, the first time they went to Europe, they went for three months straight, and I was with them then, and we all pretty much said. After two months, we were dying, but we, we stuck it out, and we all, I think everyone agreed after that, never go over to Europe for three months straight. <laughs> they had a lot of work to do. They were doing the Monsters of Rock back then and doing their own shows. They had to do that. I mean, it was like, it was required pretty much of them to do that. And I'll have to say that they did it, you know. Uh, but yeah, from room to room, it depends on the act. Of course, with the Black Crows, like I said earlier, it's 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 kind of rough and ready. So, the the more reverb in the room, the harder they are to mix. Because if you get a, uh, the easiest places outside, because there are no acoustics, it's almost like being in a studio because you have no acoustics that you're defending. Uh, but when you're in a big reverberatorium, one time we did this it was horrible. We did this gig in Albuquerque, and they put us in a brand new convention center. That was like a huge room. We're playing in a corner of this room to like 2,000 people or maybe 3,000 people, but there's nothing to cordon off the rest of the place. So you just got this big old empty space all behind you and things are just swimming around. Like I'm talking 15 second reverb decay. (laughs) That was probably the worst night of my life. Or certain arenas like Hershey Park Arena the old hockey arena. That was one of the hardest ones to mix in just because it has a lot of concrete and reflective surfaces. But if you got them in a, in a, in a tighter room or like in clubs, things like that, uh, they were, uh, you know, a lot is more tame and, and definitely uh, easier to control, you know, and, uh, also, uh, not just control, but, uh, accent to even make it bigger than it already is. I would imagine that when they would do multiple nights in the same venue, it was kind of a, once you got it set up, it's kind of the same thing throughout. Yeah, it's funny you say that because I'd always think, you know, a lot of times you do those and it's just going to get better and better and better. But I'd say at least five times out of 10, the first night was the best night, you know? (laughs) And then I don't know what it is, but it's almost like going through the whole routine of just setting the whole thing up and, just like starting fresh. I mean, but yeah, sometimes it is, you know, if you're in a really sweet sounding room and you can really dig in and and, and just enjoy the ride. uh, Yeah, you can. And, and, you know, you don't have to spend your whole day there. Plus you just get to shut it off at the end of the night and, and, and go have a drink, you know, or whatever you want to do. So uh, yeah, I always thought that was a good idea of theirs too. Uh, Instead of doing like one night in a big arena, do five nights in a theater. You know, that's that's it. Theaters are, are always fun and, and better sounding than a ring. I mean, things have changed some now. Rooms are better now than they used to be. And the PA systems are quite a bit different now, too, than they used to be. So, uh, you know, but that was uh, always a blast. So, Jeff, like, what what is a typical day for you on the road? I mean, kind of walk us through that, because I, I'm I, we at, we talked to Charity and Mona about the same thing. I'm kind of interested because I would think you're probably at the the venue a lot earlier than everybody else, and you're probably there maybe a little bit later. I would think after everybody leaves, kind of what was your typical day from like the time you got up to you know you went to bed? 
Well, there's two different kinds. There's a, like if you have your own tour where we're carrying our own production, which is usually two trucks or maybe three uh, or maybe more, you're on a tour bus. The band have their tour bus, so we're separate from them. Uh, but you pretty much you do the bus thing because the bus is the best way to do it. If you're doing like three shows in a row in three different places, you're living on the bus, you wake up, you go in, they have catering there, so you eat breakfast there, lunch and dinner, so you can't, don't have to go off-site. The food's already there. You kind of, you know, you just go in, and it's like a, almost like a being in the military or something. You know, set up your, your operation, and, and then the people show up, and you do it, and then uh, you leave. And, and in most cases, this is the funniest part, like the band usually do a lot of bands do what they call play and wave. You know, they got a car sitting out back with a police escort and they go off the stage and they're waving, go right into the car, the door shut and they're off to the, the plane to go to the hotel in the nearby city or whatever it is they're doing. Shit, the black crows, man, they would be in their dressing room. We would have to wait for them to finish because they were <laughs> everyone in the dressing room partying and they had this big, stereo that in tapestries and everything in their dressing room so we we would set all that up every day that was half the project of set, setting up the gig and setting up their dressing room and <laughs> they even at one point had a, a rolling bar road case bar that didn't last long because maintaining it and keeping it clean was not easy to do that went away but yeah the stereo was always a staple and the la I'd hear it so many times, you know, why, why didn't we leave yet? And you'd see the truck sitting there with the one door still open. We're waiting on the stereo. <laughs> then we like a, a little big boom box that we would get that stereo. And, and it, you, you feel like a horrible, you feel horrible going in there, like unplugging the big one, trying to sink the other one in <laughs> where as good as the other one does. You know, and it's like, shit. You know, we got to go to bed because we got to get up early and work again tomorrow. And there's still going full tilt. You know? So that was always a funny way. It wasn't funny then, but it's a lot really funny now because we would be in there with them, too, sometimes. So. <laughs> <laughs> now, the uh, the Black Girls were always known as a uh, taper friendly band. They would let people record the shows. And that was a big a big thing that they did. How much interaction did you have with those tapers? And, you know, did that ever present a problem for what? you were doing never i mean it was part of the part of the deal i mean yeah at one point we they we had a like a press box where they could we get put a feed into it at first it was a little vague so i didn't like it at first because people come up hey where's my feed and i was like no one told me i had to provide a feed you know <laughs> gonna start doing the feed thing so we got the press box and hooked the feed up to it my only uh problem with that is i'm not mixing for tape i'm mixing for the room so those mixes could sound a lot different than what they sound like in the gig but whatever i mean if that's their decision that's their decision and i actually heard some tapes recently that i uh came across and got back to the brothers um and they uh they sounded pretty damn good it's been a long time and uh i was actually quite um thrilled with that so uh <laughs> You know, it brought back a lot of memories and a lot of smiles, too. Well, uh, Jeff, much has been said kind of over the years mm -hmm. about, you know, you even alluded to the fact of how, how loud they were. And, uh, there's been a lot of talk on message boards or whatever about Rich, how loud he was in the mix. And 
some fans have complained, you know, because he was so loud. Chris really had to had tried to sing over that. And, you know, obviously by the end of some of those runs, you know, his voice w- was taxed because of that. Was this like a request from Rich to be that loud or was it just something that kind of happened? Yeah, I mean, it really, he's he's the one that sets his volume. Not not no one tells him. See, I'm not the kind of guy that likes to tell people how to do things. So maybe I was a little guilty of not make bringing it up. Uh, here, here's the best example I can give you. Let's put it like this: uh, You have a lot of uh, what we call sheds out there. You know, uh, indoor outdoor theaters that the first five thousand seats are covered, and then the back part is a lawn. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so they're like, you know, a lot of those places have DB limits because of, um, you know, there's things around it and it is outside. So a lot of them have a 102 DB limit. So we, when we did the Horde tour in 95, we got going. We just flown back from England or Europe doing a European thing and went straight into Horde like two days later. So we did the first gig and the, the noise police was there, the guy hired by the meter so he's like telling me you know he shows up right before the show and sets his stuff up and we get going and he's like it's too loud it's too loud you know and for me that's the worst thing to try to deal with you know you've already let the horse out of the gate you don't want to like slow it down but i i know how to do a couple little things i can try to do to reduce the volume you know and uh had to work with it, but had to wrestle with it all night long, you know, because I had no dynamic range to mix within. So that night after the show, I told the production manager, I said, we need to have our noise police show up for sound check and be there then so that I can see what they're getting on their meter and not get surprised in front of 10,000 people. So we did it. And the next day, the guy shows up. I'm out there and he comes out with this nice lime green fancy meter from Germany. It looks like it costs about, you know, $20,000 or something. <laughs> Sets it up, you know, and the band come out and the, the crows too were funny at soundcheck because they never liked to soundcheck. You know, some bands are soundcheck champions. They have three songs they like to play and they're done. And it covers all the bases that you need to hear to get an even gauge for the show. Black crows want to come out and, and, and jam is what they like to do. <laughs> but they come out, you know, some days it would be full tilt. Some days it would start off soft and grow. But, you know, they're up there just doing their usual thing, probably going about medium range. I looked over at the man at, at the meter and I said, how are we doing? He goes, oh, man, you're fine. You're just cruising at 101 and the limit's 102. And I said, great. I said, now let's turn the PA on. And I went over and unmuted the PA. That was just them coming off the stage. So wow. The PA, and it instantly shot up to 105 because I can't just put vocal in the PA and the kick drum. It doesn't work that way. You got to put everything in the PA so that everyone can hear it. The PA's job is to spread the sound out evenly to everyone out there. Then I would have to get on the talk back and ask the band, uh, hey guys, uh, would you mind uh, turning it down up there? Because I got one dB of a window here to try to build a mix in right now, the way it sits, you know, and and that would all get a few looks or comments. But you know, it, it, I, that was the toughest thing for me was trying to mix, especially in a place where there was a big dB limit and not enough space for the band's natural sound to coast off. So yeah, 
And as far as the stage volume goes, yes, I had front fills down at the front lip of the stage that would just put vocals in and maybe some keyboards to try to compensate for the people. I mean, who doesn't like to be down at the front of the stage for a concert? I always did whenever I was going to see a concert. But I realize now as a sound engineer for them, whoever you were sitting in front of was probably mostly what you heard, you know. And I did go up on stage a few times when they were playing during sound checks. And it was like every step you took was a completely different sound and all really loud all at the same time. So uh, I wish that at the time they, they had some things where if they helped me a little bit, I could have helped them a lot. But, you know, at the same time, I let them do what they wanted to do. And that's all there was to it. So it's their decision, their choice. And that's the way we roll. Now, uh, what was your reason for stopping working with the band after the Jimmy Page tour? And do you still keep in contact with any members of the band? Yeah, they uh, after 10 years, uh, well, the Jimmy Page thing ended up getting kind of canceled, and we weren't doing anything for a while. Uh, it was just like no news, pretty much. And then at the beginning of the next year, I got a call that they were going to start making some plans. I'd started working around the New York area then at that time doing local stuff. I was, to be honest, a little tired of touring. We, basically, we did the, Black, or the Jimmy Page thing. And uh, they wanted to go back out that next year, and they decided that they wanted to make a change. So it was their decision. At the time, I was already doing local work, and I, I really didn't want to go on the tour anyway. So uh, it was their decision and my decision, I would say, that uh, kind of parted ways by then. You know? Well, let me ask you this. You don't have to give the, the name of the band or anything because you've worked with a lot of people. Have you ever faced a situation where, like, one member of the band said, I want you to turn somebody else down, and then, like, you're – kind of for you're kind of caught in the middle here and having to play diplomat well when it's rich rich is the the one of the main founders of the band rich is the, the one of the guys that's not going to get fired okay so no matter who it might be I, I mean and for the other guitar player they just would get along they weren't the ones getting the damage because they're over on the other side of the stage i mean guitar amps are very directional or, or pretty directional in a way so they're probably not getting slapped as hard as the people are out in front of uh, the stage left amplifiers. But, uh, you know, it, it, in some situations, maybe some people can do that. I mean, nowadays, people are a lot more aware of stage volume and, and you know, in-ear monitors weren't really a thing back then. Everyone was using wedges. So uh, nowadays, with people getting those slick sounds through the sound system, maybe even using laptops with half of it being recorded tracks along with it to make it sound so slick, then uh, that can be a thing when everyone's using ear monitors and there's literally no stage volume. You know, if you walk up on their stage, you're not hearing anything really. You're just hearing the sound coming from the front of house. But uh, this is straight ahead, 100%, 100 proof rock and roll. So, uh it is what it is, and, you know, you just deal with the situation you deal with. And uh, if it were me nowadays, yeah, I'd probably play it differently. But back then, I, I was like, I'm just going to do what I can do. And, uh, you know, just well, all it does is it makes whatever's the loudest thing, then everything else has to be equally or, or louder to, to, to build a mix from that point, you know. So the threshold going to the overall product is going to be louder overall because it starts off loud to begin with. It's one of those things, you know, it's, it's like if you tell the boss, you know, not to do what he's doing, you know, what's going to happen here. Right. So, uh, 
just at the time wanted to just keep working. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that brings us a little bit uh, toward, more towards the present. What are you up to uh, these days? Well, I'm pretty much semi-retired these days. Uh, I had a neck surgery almost three years ago where I now have, I have a titanium neck. So I had a C3 through 7 fusion. But leading up to that, for that, we were um, working on a book for my dad. And uh, the book is called Soul Fingers. And it's a, a, a base book. So it has 59 or something, a whole bunch of tracks uh, in tab and uh, in notation. And it's also got a 59-page or so biography in it, too. It's got a lot of cool pictures in it. And it's got uh, a link. They used to do it with CDs, but now there's a link where you can hear the tracks. And the left side wow. is the whole band, the right side is the bass. So you can either play along with it or pinpoint it or do both. And uh, the recording session for it, we did it in, a, in one week. It was a pretty big feat, but a lot of fun. I had some really good guys to work with. Uh, I played on one track, Soul Man. Uh, and uh, Nick Rosati, the author, he played on uh, all the rest except for two tracks, which uh, Will Lee played on. This was like uh, about a two-year thing to get it done. Yeah, and as far as that Soul Fingers book goes, uh, we do have a copy here that we'd like to do a uh, giveaway for. Once the post comes out for the episode, if you share it on the Facebook platform and uh, send us a screenshot that you shared it, you'll be put in the running to get yourself a copy of that book. And it looks like a great book. And it also should be noted that the uh, foreword in the book is done by uh, Dan Aykroyd, Mr. Elwood Blues himself. That should be great. And, and also, just a quick side note, recently we just got through doing a thing where I went online about three months ago and just googled my father's name and, and i came across these t-shirts that someone was selling and i was like thinking well, why is someone else selling his stuff you know so i went in and i got a graphic artist and and got some artwork done up and so now we have stuff available at guitar happy at redbubble.com and it's a website where they sell merchandise uh they just pretty much handle it all you know they make it they print it but you got everything from T-shirts to coasters and, uh, you know, all kinds of cool stuff, different artworks and stuff like that. So one of the things I do, too, is I'm kind of in charge of my father's estate. Ever since my mother's health has kind of gotten harder for her, uh, I've been taking over a lot of that stuff. So I deal with that stuff, too, and uh, collect bases. And I still dabble in music. I have recording equipment and some PA stuff. What's your most prized bass? Oh, I'd have to say my father's 1959 precision base. Uh, that wow. that's the one that you know he's most known for. That has the three stickers on it, and uh, it's uh, it was made in April of 1959. It's probably his most uh, you know the the one that everyone thinks about or talks about when they talk about him. At the Red Bu or the Guitar Happy at Red Bubble website, we do sell those stickers too. We sell this duck sticker and also the Gort sticker and the Blues Brothers sticker. If anyone wants to duckify their base, <laughs> yeah. Wow, that is uh, that's really cool, man. It, it, and I've always enjoyed talking to people like you that you're kind of a lifer in the business, and and you know your your dad was a lifer in the business, and and getting kind of 
all these like cool stories. Cause like I had no idea that like the first time you ever kind of played with the knobs or whatever, it's like Eric Clapton. I mean, that's like, <laughs> and with the black crows too, it was, I went for a week when I started working with them and they didn't know who my father was or anything. Cause I don't like to tell people right off the bat who he is. You know, I want people to like me for me. Right. But, uh, I think it was about a week after Chris kind of pulled me aside he goes, hey, man, uh, your last name is Dunn. And I go, yeah, so? And he goes, your your dad, is he the bass player, Dunn Dunn? I think he, someone told him who he, for sure it was. And I said, yeah, yeah, he's my dad. You know, he goes, fuck, man, I love your dad, man. <laughs> so, you know, we always had that in common, too. You know, Chris, I have to say, had, was, uh, uh, you know, had a lot of CDs and was always listening to all kinds of music and just loved to listen to music and talk about it. And yeah, when we came to Tampa the first time, uh, we we had a day off and the whole band came to my parents' house and, and he cooked steaks for everyone and we all hung out and everything. And then the next night they came to the concert and my father uh, sat in with them and played Hard to Handle, which is, you know, the Otis Redding song that he played on on its original version back in the day. Wow. So Chris has a jacket that my dad gave to him. It's like a blue suede blazer with uh, multicolored embroidery and the lapels. And it's at the Stax Museum now on loan from Chris for the museum there. So, you know, me and Chris stay in touch somewhat. You know, we bump into each other here and there or text once in a while. So, And uh, I also stay in touch a little bit with Steve Gorman, too. Let me ask you this. His book came out a couple of months ago. Have you had a chance to read it? Yeah, he actually sent me one. That was very nice of him. So I took, I, I read it. Yeah, it was uh, quite a, an eyeful for me. Uh, you know, I didn't really get or know about a lot of the stuff that was going on. You know, they were away from us while right. we were in the, during the day. So, uh, yeah, it was uh, quite surprising and uh, an adventurous read, I must say. And, and you know... I'll tell you what, uh, just made me think of what I've told some people. You know, they said, yeah, you work for, for the Black Crows? I said, yeah, for 10 damn years, and I lived through it. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it was great to talk to you guys, and uh, I hope that uh, people can appreciate what I, what I had to say. Jeff, it was a pleasure. I've been looking forward to this ever since uh, – my, my buddy Todd Poole and you were friends and I said, Hey Todd, can I use your name or whatever? You know? And he said, yeah, man, go ahead. He said, he's a great guy. And I actually yeah. talked to uh, Gorman not too long ago and told him we we're going to interview you. So, uh, thank you so very much. This is really cool. We may have you on in the future sometime. Just to talk about something other than the crows. If you want to. Sounds good to me. And maybe we can talk more about the crows once they get their shows out there coming up. Uh, and don't forget everyone. Uh, you can get that merch at guitar happy shop at redbubble.com. And don't forget about the book Soul Fingers by uh, Hal Leonard Publishing. It's available on Amazon or any book. Jeff, it was a pleasure, man. Stay safe and stay indoors, and we'll get through this. And I uh, uh, hope maybe we'll bump into you to show sometime. Thank Great. you so much, Jeff. I appreciate it. Take Thank care. You. Thanks. All right, everybody, that's our show for this week. And being that Jeff's dad, Donald Duck Dunn, played on the original Otis Redding recording, here's a Black Crows doing Hard to Handle from 1995. Stay tall, everybody.
So mama, I'm sure what you handle now, yes I am. So mama, I'm sure what you handle now, yes I am. So mama, I'm sure what you handle now, yes I am. Cause the mama, I'm sure what you handle now, yes I am. Say 